Please take your Bibles and go to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, you need a black. There's a black Bible in a chair in front of you. You need a Bible. In the chair in front of you, there's a black Bible. Go to the back of that black Bible and you can find page 168. 168, where you'll find Titus chapter 2. Today we're going to study chapter 2, 11 through 15. 2, 11 through 15 of Titus. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 15. So this Titus will take us to the end of the year. We've got 3, 1 through 7 next Sunday, and then 8 through 15 the following Sunday, and we'll be done with the book of Titus. This has been a fun, short little study. Hope you've been enjoying it. <clears throat> Titus chapter 2, 11 through 15. Let me read, and I'm mixing again some Greek with uh, New American Standards. That's why it might sound a little odd. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the happy hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a chosen people zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all command. Let no one disregard you. Our oldest daughter, Chris and I, our oldest daughter, Chloe, her and her husband, they moved to Missouri and they had just purchased their first home. So kind of a big deal for them. Brand new, just built. And they were actually going to purchase one house in the beginning. This one is in Ozark. This other one they were going to purchase was in Republic uh, before this one that they just closed on. Uh, they were having problems with this first house and then came the inspection for this first house and sure enough, the inspector found mold in the foundation. Amongst, I mean, there's a lot of other things they found too, but that was one of the highlights, mold in the foundation. So obviously, they didn't buy that one. <laughs> You've heard it in other messages You've heard it used many times as an analogy and we cannot stress this enough. It is vital to have a solid foundation. You must have a solid foundation. Without it, a house will fall. Remember, Jesus says this, Matthew chapter seven. The house built upon the sand versus the house built upon the rock that house built upon the rock will stand. That's one who lives by his words, Jesus' words. Paul does the same thing here. This is the basis for demonstrating the truth. Titus is about demonstrating the truth. It's the command. Demonstrate the truth. Demonstrate grace at work in your life. And today, in verses 2, Chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, we see the reason why. Why do we demonstrate the truth? What motivates us to demonstrate the truth at work in our lives? 
Here's some questions for you. Upon what basis are we exhorted to have these kinds of real relationships in the body? You might say, what relationships? Chapter 2, verse 2 through 10. Those relationships. I'll briefly read through that a little bit later. Upon what basis are we exhorted toward these relationships? Or another question. Upon what basis are we urged to live godly, holy, truth-demonstrating, dazzle-displaying lives? Upon what basis? Why? Now remember, right living flows from right thinking. This is what Titus is about, the whole book of Titus. Right living flows from right thinking. Redemption leads to sanctification. God saves us so that he may change us who belong to him and demonstrate his grace, his truth at work in our lives. We've been redeemed from lawless deeds so that we be zealous for good deeds. So why do we demonstrate the truth? God's grace. That's why. His instructing, his redeeming, his changing grace that kind of grace. He calls us to say no to sin and yes to real Christian godly living now while we wait for the appearance of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. God's grace. God's grace, it brings salvation to humanity. Look at verse 11. For the basis for his commands of verse 1 and through 10, or 2 through 10, for the grace of God has appeared. What is grace? Grace. Undeserved favor towards humanity whereby God saves, God instructs, God enables his people whom he's chosen. Undeserved favor. You don't deserve it. You're not worthy. You've never been worthy. Because if you were worthy, it wouldn't be called grace. You're never worthy. God is worthy. He shows mercy and grace to sinners who should be thrown into hell. His favor towards hell-bounded sinners to rescue them and then he transforms them. That grace Christ Jesus, our Savior, he'll mention later on, died on our behalf to redeem us from lawlessness and cleanses us to be his own people who live how he wants us to live because we love him and we desire him. We love him and desire him above all. And that's why Titus was called to teach these things urge these things and, and, and reprove with authority. That's, that's why he's called to do this. God's grace is the foundation for these ethical commands. How we live must be grounded in and motivated by truth. People do nice things all the time. People do good things all the time. Especially the time of year, Christmas. They're giving. We should be different because God has been so gracious to give his son when we didn't deserve it. And that's what Paul does here. 
He gives you the motivation. Grace. Grace. Grace motivates you. So, older men, you're called to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith and love and perseverance. Older women, you're called to be reverent in your conduct, not slanderers, not enslaved to much wine. You're teaching what is good and you're teaching younger women. You younger women are called to love your husbands, to love your children, sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, submitting to your own husbands so the word of God may not be blasphemed. Young men are to be sensible. Titus, with the older men, with the younger men, we should be those who show an example of good deeds in doctrine pure, dignified, sound speech which is no one can bring reproach in order that the opponent may be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Slaves should be subject to their own, husband, to their own masters in everything, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not stealing, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Why? It's God's grace. That's what motivates us. And here, what Paul does, he unpacks what this grace is all about. And I'll I'll put it up here on the screen for you. And then we're gonna go through point by point, piece by piece. God's grace brings salvation, which consists of, one, the incarnation. Two, sanctification. Three, consummation. Four, crucifixion. Five, redemption. Six, purification. Seven, sanctification. Again, he repeats that. This is the summation of God's salvation. This is the summation of grace. This is what grace is all about. So as we begin on this this, um, journey through verses 11 through 15, you'll see the grace of God unfold. So, This grace, and it'll be up there on the screen individually just in case you're trying to write this down. This grace or salvation consists of seven different aspects. Notice, number one, the incarnation. The grace of God has appeared. God has been so gracious to send his son in the incarnation. At the incarnation, salvation is brought to us as humans. For unto you, is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, that sounds familiar. God at the fullness of time took on flesh to save us. The incarnation, he appeared. Jesus appeared on the scene. Jesus broke into our world in our time to live die and rise to save us. That's what we celebrate this time of year. The grace of God has appeared. The incarnation. Jesus took on flesh. So all his actions in Christ, God's actions, all that he's done in salvation, it's all grace. So shouldn't we act this gracious way towards each other? Apparently, that was a good point. Phone's going off, all right. Should not our lives be demonstrations of his grace and of his truth? Shouldn't that happen in us? Next point. Oh, it's waiting for the third one. Notice he says, 
For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. That is to all classes of people. The all is qualified from the context referring to us. He's gonna bring that up later. His people who belong to him, believers. Certainly all are called to come to Christ but the actual saving work of God's grace comes only to those who belong to him whom he's chosen before the foundation of the world. This grace consists of first the incarnation. Number two, sanctification. Look at verse 12. Instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires. The purpose of the appearance of God's grace is first to instruct you or to train you. Notice, instructing us to deny ungodliness. God's grace of instruction purpose to have us deny or renounce or say no to sin. To say no to ungodliness, which means impiety, both in thought and action, as one writer put it. So if godliness means our beliefs in action, being a God-fearer, the outward evidence of true faith in Christ, a godly life demonstrating true faith in Jesus, then ungodliness is just the opposite. And God's grace teaches us to say no to sin. No! God's grace teaches us to renounce it. No! Or we could put it a different way, and this is kind of, uh, this is not looking at here just sanctification but other pieces as well renouncing the past we live godly in the present looking forward to the future we're renouncing the past and that's what repentance is you repent you, you turn away from that you want nothing to do with that this is how God's grace works in our lives we repent of who we were it's not just a change of your mind it's a change of your heart He says, denying ungodliness and worldly desires. Worldly desires, the character, is the character of this world, which is every lawless deed, the passions, the lust, the cravings. Friends, that's why we should not be involved in immorality. That's why we should not be involved in pornography. That's why we should not be involved in homosexuality. That's why we should not be involved in drugs. That's why we should not be involved in drunkenness or lying or partying or slandering or gossiping or rebellion. That is of the world. Why do Christians get involved in that? If you say you're a follower of Jesus, you renounce that. That's what God's grace does, right? God's grace breaks in. You say no. No to that. And notice the sanctification, it continues on. This is actually the main verb. We live, he says, positive, now three positives, sensibly, righteously, and godly. This is how we live now. We're different. We say no to sin and we live godly now, sensibly, that which is self-control, which is thoughtful. He's used this word numerous times. Righteously in an upright manner towards those around me. 
godly, as a God-fearer, imitating God in his actions, being devoted to him, obedient to him, loving him. This is how we live. Now, in the present, we're different. We've been changed. Interesting too, these three adverbs that he gives to live, we live sensibly, righteously, and godly. It denotes three aspects of our lives. First, in my personal life, I'm self-controlled. Second, in my relationships with others, I live uprightly. Third, towards God, there's genuine piety, holiness. And, and he says, we live in these ways in the present age, in the now age. It's not simply getting your ticket to heaven. That's not Christianity. We have a now mentality. At least God's grace teaches us to live with a now mentality. We're instructed how to live now, today. But also, this present age is full of evil and wickedness in the world. It's full of evil. This age characterizes sinfulness and lawlessness. Friends, we should not live like this now in this now age because that's not who we are anymore. That's not me. That's not you. Why are we living like that? Grace has has broken in, right? Or changed. The incarnation, sanctification, and notice number three, consummation. They all have a shun ending because preachers like doing silly things like that. Anyways, 13, looking for the blessed hope, the happy hope, expectantly waiting, looking forward to. We live not just in the present but with the hope for the future glorification or consummation when Christ return and establish his kingdom for a thousand years and then the eternal state will happen. This hope is Jesus Christ appearing. Notice he says, looking for the happy hope and the appearing. This hope appearing is for glory. One writer says it's unseen but yet sure, this hope. Because hope is not just a wish but factual, confident expectation that God will keep his promise. It's a happy hope. It's a blessed hope. It makes you happy. It's so good because when you wake up in the morning and everything hurts in your body, you're like, and I gotta try and get up. I'm gonna stay in bed. It's too cold out there. Happy hope. I get to see my Lord come. That's, that's, that's motivation to uh, get out of the bed. Right? Well, at least it should be. A happy hope 
happy because Jesus' return will bring all things to a great close. His grace appeared in the past, so we wait for its reappearing in the future. And notice, he says, the hope appearing, the happy hope appearing is of God's glory found in the Lord of glory, the Son of God, who will be glorified by all humanity, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this glory is our happy hope. In this glory is his appearing. And so we take, by the way, this last part of verse 13, as it's translated in the New American Standard, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, I think the New King James has two persons, our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. I take the view it's one person. He is the one true God to whom all should bow and give homage. So he, Christ Jesus our Savior, as he says in chapter one, verse four, will return in full glorification at the consummation, bringing our happy hope. This is why we live balanced lives. This is why. There's a present responsibility, but we have future expectation. This motivates us. We're looking for it. We're waiting for it to happen. So again, renouncing the past, we live in the present, godly in the present, looking forward to the future. It's kind of you can sum up this part here in verse 12 and 13. Friends, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a Jesus disciple, a follower of Christ. This is what it means. You renounce the past, you live godly in the present, and you're looking forward to the future when your Lord will return. Number four, crucifixion, verse 14. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Here is the work Christ has done to bring this saving grace, this enabling grace. This is the climax of God's grace toward us. The crucifixion. He gave himself. He died. What did our Savior do? He died on the cross for our sins, for us, he says. Those who embrace him as Savior, he died on behalf of his own. We glory in his death, in the horrible, despicable, shameful death of Christ. That's what we glory in. Because it shows God's grace. I mean, there's the climax of God's grace. That's why people think you're crazy. Because you glory in death. You glory in somebody being crucified. There's something wrong with you. You're you're an idiot. You're a fool. Why would you glory in that? No, you don't understand. That's the epitome of grace. That's where I should be. But God saves me. crucifixion and then notice what happens number five redemption again verse 14 who gave himself for us that he might redeem us 
His crucifixion, Jesus dying, didn't, wasn't for nothing. There was a purpose behind his death. First, redemption. His first intention was to redeem us, to set us free, to rescue us from all wickedness. Jesus has liberated us from the penalty of sin, which makes us guilty. All our deeds that we've done in opposition to God and his law, Christ paid the price He set you free. You've been redeemed. Are you here and not a Christian? You can be redeemed. Are you here, you don't know Jesus? You can be set free. You can be liberated from all your sins. Jesus says, come. I'll forgive you. Come and I'll save you. Come and I'll free you. He says, come, I'll save you and love you. That's what we hold on to, the gospel. We should be judged and condemned because we're sinners. But because Jesus died, we repent and trust in Christ. That's the gospel. So his redemption, that's the first intention of God's crucifixion, God dying for us. Notice the second, which leads us to number six, purification, verse 14. He redeemed us from all wickedness. He's liberated us from sin and purified for himself a people for his own possession. The second intention of his work on the cross was to purify us. And notice he removed our defilement for two purposes. Number one, to have a people that belong to him. Possession, literally the word means chosen. So that's why you can translate it like this. And purify for himself a chosen people. We are chosen by Christ. We are belonging to Christ. We're loved by Christ. He has a people for himself to belong to him. He redeemed us from sin to a life of purity, as one writer put it. He graciously rescues us from sin and then he purifies us to reflect his very nature which leads to the last one, which is number seven, which is repeated again, sanctification. Zealous for good deeds. The second purpose to remove our defilement is that we be zealous for good works. Eager, enthusiastic for good works. The badge a true Christian wears is the badge of doing what's good and, and eager to do, to do the good, enthusiastic to do this good. Of course, this is the right response to God's grace, isn't it? The right response for us who belong to Christ relationally, intimately. Now, mind you, doing good deeds <clears throat> excuse me, doesn't make one a Christian, but when disciples of Christ do what's good, they're demonstrating the truth by their lives. I mean, people do good things, do good things all the time. But it's be us being motivated by grace to do these good deeds, to show the world that we're different by the way we live our lives, going back to the reason why, the reason why we do this is because of grace. I showed it to you earlier. God's grace, it brings salvation. 
It consists of one, the incarnation. Two, sanctification. Three, consummation. Four, crucifixion. Five, redemption. Six, purification. Seven, sanctification again. This is a summation of God's salvation. This is a summation of grace. This is grace. God's grace breaking in. This is our motivation to demonstrate the truth. This is our motivation to live godly lives. And then Paul adds this here to verse 15. Notice, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all command. Let no one disregard you. And this is where we come up with this point. And this grace is most essential. This grace is most essential. We stand or fall on this truth of the gospel of grace as a church. Notice, these things, what things? What he just spoke about, verses 2 through 14. Notice, he says, these things speak, verse 15. Go to verse 1 of chapter 2. You yourself, what does he say? Speak the things proper for sound doctrine. He begins with speaking, he ends with speaking. He's saying this on purpose. I'm beginning to tell you this and I'm ending with this. Speak these things or teach these practical instructions. Exhort or urge or appeal to them to live like this. Third, reprove those who teach otherwise and those in the body. Well, he needed to teach and exhort and reprove not just because there were false teachers and there were, but also because we are so forgetful, aren't we? That's why we gotta, we gotta come together at least once a week to remind us of grace, to remind you that there's forgiveness, to remind you of how God calls us to live and what motivates us is that he saved us. To remind you that you're redeemed. To remind you that you've been sanctified. To remind you that you belong to God. To remind you of grace. Because you forget. And so do I. Wait, what were we just talking about? See, I just forgot again. We still have remnants of sin. We need to be urged from the word of God to be holy. We need to be reminded of his grace. And notice he says this, with all authority, Titus, this is apostolic, this is authentic, this is, must be accentuated. It's apostolic, it's authentic, and it must be accentuated. Titus, this is God's authority, and this is what he wants for his church, so don't let anyone disregard you shoot you down, look down on you, despise the things you speak. Don't let anyone even slightly reject this grace. Members, you have this responsibility as well. Make sure this pulpit is preaching the grace of God. And so I say the same thing to you. I say it. Come with Bible church. This is how your Savior wants you to live, to demonstrate the truth, the dazzling display of Christ. This is the grace of God. This, this motivating you towards living the truth. Hold on to this grace. God's grace, his instructing, redeeming, changing grace.
Or as we'll sing soon, by grace I am redeemed, by grace, by grace I am redeemed, by grace I am transformed, I'm changed, and I can run to Jesus. I'm restored. Let's pray.